Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. This week's important congressional hearing on hate crimes and white nationalism was marred by nasty partisan politics, but the four-hour meeting produced rare testimony about a dangerous rise in intimidation and violence from those espousing hate. Today's national climate only fuels the fire. From the use of a racist expletive to describe African and Caribbean nations and much more, this administration's policies and rhetoric promotes animus against black and brown communities. And in the aftermath of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange being expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, will the freedom of speech of journalists become the latest political football in D.C.? We're going to stand here and we're going to continue to stand up for Julian Assange and we're going to continue to be guilty of the same crime that he's guilty of, and that's the crime of exposing the truth. All that and much more coming up. Free Julian Assange! Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was indicted by the U.S. Justice Department on Thursday for a so-called computer hacking conspiracy, which in the minds of much of the mainstream media meant that the charges were not related to journalism and free speech. Some news outlets even linked these new charges to the carcass of the Russiagate conspiracy. But many media experts and activists are warning that Assange's expulsion from Ecuador's embassy in London, his arrest by London police, and his indictment from the U.S. constitute a grave assault on journalists and journalism. Ariel Gold, co-director of Code Pink, was one of dozens of protesters who gathered Thursday during the evening rush hour outside the British Embassy in Northwest D.C. Well, it's much harder to gather opposition to any war if we don't know what's going on. And that is exactly what we need from a free press. And Julian Assange has been instrumental in that, from exposing the war crimes in the Iraq War and the lies of the Iraq War, and all the way through to today. More voices from the protests later in the show. Now, heated congressional hearings in this week also tackled issues including wealth inequality, hate crimes, the rise of white nationalism, and alleged surveillance of the Trump presidential campaign by U.S. spy agencies. Attorney General William Barr told a Senate subcommittee on Wednesday that, quote, I think spying did occur, end quote. Barr confirmed that he is reviewing the FBI's decision to secretly investigate whether Trump associates were conspiring with Moscow in 2016. Congress is usually very concerned about intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies staying in their proper lane. And I want to make sure that happened. We have a lot of rules about that. That decision to investigate by the FBI led to Robert Mueller's recently released report, which concluded that no such collusion had occurred. Also on Capitol Hill, Senator Bernie Sanders reintroduced a Senate version of his Medicare for All legislation with a plan to bypass congressional gridlock if he is elected president. Health care is a human right, not a privilege. Yes. And together, we are going to end the international embarrassment 
of the United States of America, our great country, being the only major nation on earth not to guarantee health care to all as a right. That is going to end. And in the 2020 presidential race, peace candidate Tulsi Gabbard passed 65,000 individual donations to make her eligible to appear in presidential debates. In culture and media, the International Week of Rebellion to confront climate change is taking place in 30 countries around the globe and dozens of cities in the United States starting on April 15th. Extinction Rebellion DC will participate by playing the climate games Tuesday, April 16th, 2019 between 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Spirit of Justice Park, New Jersey Avenue and D Street Southeast at 8 a.m. This year's event will include numerous climate-themed games such as Climate Catastrophe Dodgeball and Planetary Volleyball. All attendees will have an opportunity to join either Team Earth or Team Greed. Organizers ask, will the forces of greed and capitalism maintain their 30-year winning streak or will underdog Team Earth finally claim victory? And finally, finally, in D.C. this week, there was a triumph of culture over gentrification. Chantel James has more. When Shaw's Metro PCS, which has become iconic for blaring go-go music at the corner of Georgia and Florida Avenue since 1995, was forced to silence its speakers, D.C. residents formed a rally of more than 100 that met on Monday to passionately express the importance of go-go and the connection to long-term residents facing displacement it represents. The noise complaint was issued by a resident of recently built luxury building the Shea, where the crowd of protesters gathered. Subsequent actions included a go-go dance party of hundreds in front of the Reeve Center on Tuesday night, as well as petitions. On Wednesday, T-Mobile, which owns Metro PCS, reversed their decision to silence the music and the speakers were playing again, representing one victory in an ongoing fight to preserve the presence of black culture original to D.C. At Monday's rally, we spoke with Sean Blackman of the Answer Coalition to give this struggle context within the greater fight, and long-standing resident Gary explained why he lent his voice to the protest. Anyone knows anything about the shop knows that it's known for playing go-go. And it's not just that, but within the context of the rapid rate of gentrification and displacement happening in D.C., along with the displacement of people means the displacement of Washington, D.C.'s indigenous culture, which of course includes uh, the go-go music. You see what I mean? And so particularly in an area like the Shaw U Street area, which uh, at this point is all but completely overcome, is all but completely gentrified, places like these become increasingly important. So when we see uh, these sort of attacks with these noise ordinances, people see that as an attack on the last vestiges of black D.C. culture. And I think that is what people are responding to today. We've seen it before, just in the last year, there was a similar issue with street musicians uh, over in Gallery Place. Luckily, that was was defeated and people were able to keep performing. So people are here today to not only support this store, but to try to do what we can to make sure that DC can hold on to what's left of its indigenous local culture.
I came out here to stand up for uh, you know longtime DC residents and to try to show solidarity and fight displacement. You know, displacement of mostly black people for the you know the money gentrified mostly white population that moves in and um, you know imposes their will not just in DC but all over the country and really globally. You get some microcosms of what you know money class you know uh, does around the world. You know, around the country and around the world, uh, they impose their will on other people. They um, they stomp on other people's existence and their culture, right? Particularly black people, people of African descent. To learn more about efforts to organize to combat gentrification in the city, use hashtag #DontMuteDC on social media. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, international news with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this segment, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author, activist, and professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, of course, on Thursday, the there were demonstrations here almost spontaneously in support of Julian Assange. But aside from that just really earth-shattering story, there are other stories happening internationally. And I wanted to talk to you about Africa today, starting with the events in Libya. And so why don't we start there? So in 2011, the U.S. administration, in conjunction with NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, unleashed a vicious bombing campaign against the government of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. It led to his overthrow and eventual murder. But since that time, there has been chaos reigning in Libya. Libya has become a gateway for Africans further south, using Libya as a gateway through which they can reach European soil, oftentimes drowning in the Mediterranean Sea in the process. And even when reaching European soil, such as Italy, demagogic politicians there have used their presence to generate xenophobia, helping to bring to power neo-fascists in Rome. The latest news from Libya is that a general by the name of Haftar, who has dual U.S.-Libyan citizenship, is marching on Tripoli with the support of the Saudis, with the support of Egypt as well. And it appears that as we speak, a slow-motion bloodbath is being unleashed, which is quite remarkable given the fact that the ostensible reason for the 2011 intervention in Libya was supposedly to prevent a bloodbath, and now that bloodbath is being executed, and we do not hear a peep from Washington about this, possibly because General Haftar has known and notorious links to the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. 
In any case, uh, the president of the United States in 2011, Mr. Obama, uh, once said that the inability of his government to prepare for the day after the overthrow of Gaddafi was the single biggest blunder of his administration. I think historians might conclude that the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime, when the African Union had worked out a plan for a negotiated settlement, has to be considered the single most important demerit on the Obama report card. So, as you mentioned, there are reports of bombing. And I guess when you mentioned the with the aid of the Saudis, that probably answered my question, because I was just really wondering how this seemingly ragtag, you know, insurgency, you know, had planes, you know, for bombing. But I suppose it's with the assistance of the Saudi government. And the Egyptians, the neighboring Egyptians, too, I might add, and General al-Sisi was just in the White House just this past week uh, where he was saluted uh, by the 45th U.S. president. And I dare say that Libya was probably discussed in that particular meeting. Well, well, we'll definitely have to watch how that unfolds with his CIA connections and only platitude lip service from Mike Pompeo. I'm really wanting to watch that, you know, more carefully. Well, we also have other African leaders either stepping down or being pushed out. Let's talk about uh, Algeria and South Sudan. Well, with regard to Sudan, first of all, President al-Bashir, who, by the way, is wanted by the International Criminal Court, was subjected to a, a kind of palace coup by one of his comrades uh, in the military. Uh, This comes in the wake of demonstrations that have been unfolding for months now, initially unleashed because of a rise in the price of food, but ultimately the demonstrations in Khartoum, the capital, have become much more pointed in their denunciation of the al-Bashir government, which, by the way, as you know, has been involved in a lengthy conflict in Darfur, and you may recall that just a few years ago, South Sudan seceded from the larger Sudan, and now there is concern in South Sudan whether or not this new military government that is taking over, what that will mean for relations between the larger Sudan and South Sudan. In any case, the demonstrators in the streets don't seem as if they're pleased with this new military regime. They're still flocking to the streets. And so it's too soon to say whether or not this kind of transition will work. And you have a similar plot unfolding in Algeria to the northwest. Longtime leader, President uh, Bouteflika, was pushed out about a week or so ago. He had been in power for over 20 years Uh, He's in his early 80s and, as you know, has been confined to a wheelchair for a few years now, has has not spoken in public for six years, and there is some question, legitimate question, about his health, not to mention whether or not he might be senile at this particular moment. Once again, one of his comrades helped to push him out of office, and once again, it's unclear if those who are clamoring for change in Algeria will be satisfied with this kind of coup that has taken place in Algiers. I kind of want to connect some dots if we can. I mean, 
you you and I have discussed the role of the U.S. military, AFRICOM in Africa, and that we've certainly reported on the petition drive by the Black Alliance for Peace for the U.S. and to be out of Africa and to shut down AFRICOM. I just found out, I guess, last week that under the Obama administration, uh, the U.S. went from three bases in Africa to 84. <laughs> but I'm wondering if... Any of these recent developments are in any way related to AFRICOM and the U.S. presence there? Well, certainly related to the U.S. presence. The relations between Sudan and the United States have been rather conflicted, shall we say, which is a turnabout from the 1980s when I think it's fair to suggest that the military in Sudan had support from Washington, not least because in the 1980s, Sudan had probably the strongest communist party on the African continent outside of South Africa. And with the rise of religious zealotry uh, in Sudan, recall that Osama bin Laden himself was once cited in Sudan at a time before 9-11, at a time when he was still seen as a bedfellow uh, by Washington. And so I think it is appropriate to wonder what AFRICOM has to do with this, particularly since we know that as we speak, they're bombing Somalia to smithereens. Uh, As we speak, there's a major U.S. military base in Djibouti, uh, which, as you know, is in the Horn of Africa, uh, not that far distant from both Eritrea and Ethiopia and Somalia. So... It's appropriate to speculate about AFRICOM and not least about Algeria, since Algeria is a major oil and natural gas producer. And we know that the hallmark of this Trump administration has been a beady-eyed focus on oil and gas producers, be they in Venezuela or Iran or Russia. And so certainly I think it's important to wonder what the role of AFRICOM is in Algeria, although once again, I don't think that the corporate media has done their readers any service by neglecting such analyses. Well, why don't we go south to Zimbabwe? It's really actually not just Zimbabwe, but of course, you know, the whole region is still reeling from the the impact of Cyclone Day, and and we actually want to be a part of uh, any type of, you know, support here uh, that's actually being organized here in D.C. to connect the African community here in the United States, African-Americans, to create a support network for that region. But why don't we talk about new developments in terms of the whole issue of land reform in Zimbabwe? Well, the latest news out of Zimbabwe is that the new government of Emerson Mnangagwa, which replaced the regime of Robert Mugabe in late 2017, is moving to issue a kind of compensation to the European farmers who were expropriated during the high point, during the zenith of the uh, Mugabe administration in the 1990s and in the early part of the 20th century. It's 21st century, excuse me. Now, my sources inform me that the compensation is taking the form of compensating them not for the land per se, but for improvements they may have made to the land. 
which will be a considerably smaller sum. The question is, will even that form of compensation help to call off the wolves in Washington and in London in particular, who had slapped sanctions on Zimbabwe, not least because of expropriation of the land of the European minority, which helped to drive the economy into the ditch. If I were to be forced to make a prediction, I would suggest that that form of compensation will not satisfy London and Washington. However, I think that we in this part of North America should study that form of compensation very carefully because ultimately there will come a time in North America when there will be a reckoning with regard to settler colonialism here, not unlike the settler colonialism that once afflicted Zimbabwe, once afflicted Rhodesia. And I dare say that the idea of Native Americans here in North America seeking compensation for their land and may want to only compensate those who took their land in terms of whatever so-called improvements they made to the land as opposed to giving them compensation for the land itself. Hmm. Well, before we uh, wrap up, because we're kind of running out of time, but uh, I know you wanted to talk about a son of Africa uh, who many are remembering right now, uh, Nipsey Hussle. Well, as you know, a few days ago, this uh, musician and entrepreneur out of Southern California, out of Los Angeles, uh, was killed. He was shot in the head. Interestingly enough, the man who was defending the accused assailant is Christopher Darden, who was the prosecutor during the O.J. Simpson case. I think one of the reasons we're talking about him here is not only because of his dedication to improving and uplifting his community around Crenshaw and Lawson in Los Angeles, but also because he was of Eritrean descent and is probably the best-known person of Eritrean descent in the United States of America, if not him, perhaps the actor Tiffany Haddish. But in any case, there was a massive uh, funeral memorial for him in Los Angeles uh, on Thursday uh, with thousands upon thousands singing his praises. And it was quite remarkable that this 33-year-old young man cut down the flower of youth was remembered uh, so marvelously by so many. Okay, well, we played a little of his music uh, last week, just a clip, and we'll definitely try to continue the tribute during this hour. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. A month of solidarity, unity, and goodwill toward the people of Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi kicks off April 23rd, 6.30 p.m. at Union Temple Baptist Church, 1225 W Street in Southeast D.C., sponsored by the organizations Appeal Inc., Mass Emphasis, and Bitmari. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, voices speak out in support of Julian Assange. Stay with us. Superstar. 
I'm here with Ariel Gold, co-director of Code Pink, and we're at a demonstration in support of Julian Assange. So tell me why you organized the demonstration today. Well, we are outraged that the uh, UK has arrested Julian Assange. Rather than arresting him, they should be supporting him as somebody who releases important information and out of the importance of protecting the freedom of press. This is a, a really dangerous precedent for freedom of press and really upsetting to, to see that he was taken into custody. We are calling for his immediate release and we are calling for him not to be extradited to the U.S. So, most people know that he was very instrumental in exposing war crimes during the Iraq invasion, U.S. invasion of Iraq. Talk about how important his role was in terms of Code Pink's information that you had about what was happening in Iraq. Sure. Well, it's much harder to uh, gather opposition to any war if we don't know what's going on. And and that is exactly what we need from a free press. And Julian Assange has been instrumental in that, uh, from exposing the war crimes in the Iraq War and the lies of the Iraq War, and all the way through to today, and encompassing so much of that. You know, um, as we're looking at right now at the outcome of Israel's election, it immediately comes to my mind that uh, he was also the one that exposed the conversation between U.S. administration and the Israeli administration where they said, we don't do Gandhi very well. So we can really look across the world and see the impact that Julian Assange has. And this is part of an ongoing crackdown on whistleblowers. So we're out here to call for um, Julian Assange to be protected and and at the same time demand the release of Chelsea Manning. Free Julian Assange! Telling the truth is not a crime! Free Julian Assange! Telling the truth is not a crime! Free Julian Assange! Telling the truth is not a crime! Free Julian Assange! Stand with the truth teller! Free Julian Assange! Free Julian Assange! Free Julian Assange!
asylum, but that if he were to be expelled from the embassy, the British government has a responsibility to make sure that his rights as an asylum seeker, that his rights are respected under international law, is expected. And on top of that, Julian Assange is facing medical conditions as well. His health has been deteriorating in the embassy. He's been in that small space for almost seven years. He's having chronic pain. He's having dental problems. He has not been allowed to leave the embassy and seek medical treatment. This goes against international law that says that we cannot deny medical treatment to people, especially to people who are seeking asylum. Or, In the case of Julian Assange, the last year he's really been held as a prisoner because his rights have been severely restricted. His rights to communicate, his rights to visit, his rights to have private meetings with his lawyers have been violated. So if we have to say to the British government that this is in your hands right now, and we're looking to you to make the right decision, not to stand with the United States, who we know pushes you to do things all the time, but to stand with what's right, to stand on the side of the law, to stand on the side of human rights and free Julian Assange. Free Julian Assange. Free Julian Assange. Free Julian Assange. Free Julian You have been listening to the voices of activist Ariel Gold of Code Pink and Dr. Margaret Flowers of Popular Resistance gathered outside the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. on April 11, 2019. When we come back, speaking out on hate. Stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. well tuesday's house judiciary committee hearing on hate crimes and the rise of white nationalism was marred by nasty partisan politics but the four-hour meeting produced rare testimony about the dangerous rise in intimidation and violence from those espousing hate here are portions of the hearing chaired by representative gerald nadler democrat of new york Dr. Mohammed Abu Salha is a medical professional from North Carolina. Before moving to the United States, he worked as a general practitioner in Iraq, Kuwait, and Jordan. Dr. Abu Salha attended Eastern Virginia Medical School for a degree in psychiatry and his residency. Eva Patterson is the president and co-founder of the Equal Justice Society. Her long career of anti-discrimination work includes 26 years with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, 13 of them as executive director, co-founding and chairing the California Civil Rights Coalition for 18 years, and serving as the vice president of the ACLU National Board for eight years. She received her JD from UC Berkeley's School of Law. 
Kristen Clark currently serves as the President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Previously, she has worked with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division. She earned her A.B. from Harvard and her J.D. from Columbia Law School, which is in my district. <laughs> Morning, Mr. Chairman, esteemed members of Congress, and ladies and gentlemen. February 10, 2015, that was the day our lives cha changed forever when my two daughters, Yusuf and Razan, and my son-in-law, Dia, were shot to death execution style in Yusuf and Dia's home in Chapel Hill. When we arrived at the scene, yellow tape and flashing lights froze the blood in our veins. We had waited almost six hours before police officers confirmed that Dia, Rizvan, and Razan were all, had all been shot to death. In a desperate attempt to make it bearable, an officer whispered on a coat, they didn't suffer, it was, one, it was swift, it was one shot to the back of the head. Well, his statement did not make it any bearable, any more bearable, and nothing did. News about their death spread over the internet and media, over the globe. But we never heard in the media that the murderer hated them. Trouble began when this man observed my two daughters appearing on the scene, adorned with their hijabs. I remember my user telling me that this condescending man told her he hated how she looked and dressed. He made it very clear to my children that they were not welcome in their own neighborhood. I must be one of a few physicians, if not the only one, who read his own children's murder autopsy reports in details. They are seared into my memory. Bullets macerated Yusuf and Razan's brains. Dia took many bullets to the arms and chest before he fell down to the ground, and after that, the murderer saw that he was still breathing and shot him again in the mouth. The last time we saw them in their coffins, Yusuf's forehead was bulging and her hazel eyes had turned gray and lifeless. It was once Razan's warm and smiling face filled with life, was now lifeless, stone cold, and deadly pale. Dia's face lacked expression, and he had a broken tooth from that final shot to the mouth. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to testify before you, but I want you to remember more than their deaths. I want you to know who they were and what we have lost. Yusur was a vibrant 21-year-old woman who always found ways to give to others in every aspect of her life. From volunteering at a dental clinic for Syrian refugees in Turkey, to feeding the homeless in downtown Raleigh, and building houses for Habitat for Humanity. She graduated from NC State University and was accepted at UNC Schools of Dentistry to be with the love of her life, Dia. Razan was 19 years old and was so full of life. She was a gentle soul, generous giver, talented artist, a photographer. Razan was a freshman at NC State University's School of Design and aspired to be an architect. During her freshman year, she mentored, a new, she mentored and taught youth, and she led Project Downtown, feeding the homeless in Raleigh and Durham with meals tagged with inspirational and personalized notes, she wrote. My wife and I raised them to be Muslim Americans, proud of their country and their community, as Muslim as apple pie. I'm sorry, as American as apple pie. That can be Muslim too. <laughs> My son-in-law, Dia Barakat, was a smart and kind young man who was studying dentistry at UNC Chapel Hill. Dia was an avid basketball fan, but not of Duke. 
and was so proud of his hometown. Dia was a compassionate, caring individual who spent much of his time giving back to those in need, including uh, getting free dental supplies to the homeless. Although Yusur and Dia were only married for six, years, for six weeks, so six short weeks before they were murdered, those were the happiest days of our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, what happened to our children was a home invasion and execution. Three beautiful young Americans were brutally murdered, and there's no question in our minds that this tragedy was born of bigotry and hate. This has happened to, on too many occasions. Families like mine, regular Americans living regular lives, are left without hope that justice will truly be served. Our families were fortunate to have Muslim advocates and other lawyers supporting us every step of the way, but not everyone is so lucky. I am afraid for our country. In 2016, the FBI recorded a 67% increase in anti-Muslim hate crimes. And just, a week ago, just weeks ago, a young man in Indiana was shot in the back of the head by a man shouting anti-Muslim slurs. And we miss our children so much. At times, the pain is just as sharp now as it was when they died. And I ask you, I truly plead to you, not to let another American family go through this because our government would not act to protect all Americans. Please remember them, Yusur, Dia, and Razan. They are my children, and they are gone. I'm happy to take questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Patterson. I'm so sorry. Um, Chairman Nadler, Vice Chair Stanton. Uh, it's a great honor to be at this hearing. I'm president of the Equal Justice Society. We're an organization that is transforming the nation's con Oh, Ranking Member Collins, I didn't see you, sorry. Um, we're transforming the nation's consciousness on race through law, social science, and the arts. We often watch these hearings and are really rather startled at the rancor that goes on between the parties. So I have a favor to ask of the Democrats and the Republicans here today. But first, a brief moment of silence for his children and all the victims of hate crimes. For the next five minutes, I would like you all to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want you to listen as Americans and not as partisan enemies. I come in peace, truly. Rather than list my credentials, I want to tell you who I am. I was born in your state, Representatives Jackson, Lee, Escobar, uh, Garcia, and Gomer. I'm a Texan from San Antonio, Texas. Some of the things I'm going to share with you are difficult to hear, but they are facts. In August 1619, 400 years ago, 20 enslaved Africans landed at Jamestown. In order to sell, rape, and beat these Africans, white Americans, and I know none of you own slaves, had to see us as less than human. Thomas Jefferson said the following about me and my ancestors. They have no tenderness and love, they are intellectually inferior, they are physically unattractive. Thus began a narrative, says law professor Shauna Marshall, that black people were only good for physical labor, we were inhuman and violent. This was a narrative necessary in order to justify slavery. White supremacy has been a feature of the mistreatment of Native Americans for years, and it was applied to Africans once we arrived here. From the beginning of our country's inception through the Constitution, the Founding Fathers knowingly and consciously embraced slavery and white supremacy. 
Politics, including the three branches of government, have played and continue to play a role in the perpetuation of white supremacy and the continued mistreatment of black people, either through action or inaction. In 1857, the Supreme Court, in the Dred Scott decision, reinforced white supremacy by saying black people have no rights that white people need respect. Ultimately, slavery ended, the Reconstruction era happened, black men could vote, and then politics reared its ugly head once again. Federal troops were withdrawn from the South in order to uh, place Rutherford B. Hayes on the pre in the presidency, and the reign of terror in the South began. Once again, I'm a, I'm a, a Southerner. The Ku Klux Klan came about. They were white supremacists. They lynched people. They made sure that black people could not vote. For years, the NAACP asked Congress to act on anti-lynching laws. Congress refused to act. Fast forward to 1964, our fellow Texan got the Civil Rights Act passed, but when it passed, he said, we have lost the South for a generation, he said, of Democrats. Six years later, the Southern strategy was devised to encourage white people to abandon the Democratic Party and vote for the GOP. It was a shrewd and effective political strategy, but it drove yet another wedge between black and white people. Fast forward to 2008. America elects a black president. Unfortunately, this proves very unsettling to many people who have felt superior to black people when there's a black president and a black family in the White House. In 2015, Donald Trump began his campaign by calling Mexicans rapist. He called for a Muslim ban. When white supremacists marched in Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us and blood and soil, which is straight from the Nazi playbook, Mr. Trump said there are good people on both sides. He recently called asylum seekers animals. Dylan Roof goes into a place of worship and murders black souls. Jews are slaughtered in Pittsburgh. Muslims are slaughtered in New Zealand. We need the Congress to stand up and act. Ranking Member Collins, I was so delighted to hear your strong statement against white supremacy and that the Republicans took a lead in denouncing it. But we need you to do more. Out there where I live in California, we're not so sure where the Congress stands on white supremacy. So we're delighted that you're speaking up. I'd also like to address Chief Justice Roberts, who dismantled the Voting Rights Act in Shelby versus Holder. He said racism had been eradicated. That simply is not true. I hope he will talk to Justice Judge Bernice Donald from the Sixth Circuit, who writes extensively on racism. We hope that a majority of you will want to give the country a signal that we are one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to answer any questions at the appropriate time. Thank you. Chairman Nadler, Ranking Member Collins, and members of the committee, my name is Kristen Clark. I'm President and Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Thank you for the opportunity to testify during this critical hearing, which is about real issues that are truly a life and death matter for far too many. The Lawyers Committee is a national civil rights and racial justice organization created at the request of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, and for over 55 years, we've stood on the front lines of the fight for justice. We lead one of the most robust anti-hate and anti-extremism projects in the nation. From connecting real survivors on our 844-9-NO-HATE hotline to training law enforcement and prosecutors, 
pushing reform in the tech sector, and using the courts to hold violent white supremacists accountable, we work to confront hate every day. We know that hate crimes are not new, and we carry out this work with sensitivity to our nation's dark and sordid history of racial violence. African Americans in particular have experienced generations of racial terror. Between 1882 and 1968, there were over 4,700 lynchings in the U.S., and the majority of the victims were black. And since the FBI began publishing data on hate crimes in 1995, African Americans remain the single group most frequently targeted for hate. How are we fighting back? We successfully disrupted online platforms that promote hate and racial violence, shutting down and obstructing some of the largest hate sites online. We advocated for Facebook to abandon its ill-conceived policy under which they banned white supremacist activity but permitted white nationalist and white separatist activity because we know these racist ideologies are indistinguishable and equally dangerous. We're working with and pushing the tech sector to reform their policies to ensure that they're not providing a breeding ground for violent white supremacists, and we've partnered with the International Association of Chiefs of Police to strengthen law enforcement's response to hate as well. And we're also holding white supremacists accountable through the courts. Last year, we filed suit on behalf of a young African-American woman elected to serve as student president on her campus at American University. Following her election, she was subject to racist trolling. She was doxxed with all of her personal information published online. Bananas and nooses were hung on campus, including messages describing her as a gorilla. We secured a strong settlement last December with one of the defendants. But we can't do this work alone. We need our government to do its part. But today's national climate only fuels the fire. From the use of a racist expletive to describe African and Caribbean nations and much more, this administration's policies and rhetoric promotes animus against black and brown communities. We also see an FBI diverting resources to investigate so-called black identity extremism, all at the expense of combating real hate. Thus, it's not surprising that we're seeing an increase in reported hate crimes today. Corrosive white supremacist movements are tearing away at the fabric of our nation. And without question, they are using online platforms to recruit new members, activate followers, target communities, organize rallies, stream their murders, and incite violence. Instead of hiding under hoods, they now organize behind computer screens. They've sought to rebrand themselves, employing new labels to try and become more palatable to broader audiences. But regardless of what you call them, the alt-right, neo-Nazis, the KKK, Proud Boys, all pose the same threat today. What must we do now? As we continue to use aggressive lawyering strategies to move towards a society that's true to its democratic ideals, we call on all communities to help tear down the structures that facilitate violent white supremacy in our country. The banks that facilitate commercial transactions, the tech companies that provide open platforms, the web hosts that prop up these sites are all part of an infrastructure that feeds hate that must be dismantled. 
Congress must study and consider new laws for con uh, combating this online threat, and the federal government must abandon policies that fuel hate. At the Lawyers Committee, we're inspired by the strength and courage of survivors, and will continue to fight for a world in which no one is enforced to endure such immeasurable pain. Thank you. The gentleman from Louisiana, Mr. Richmond. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me start by uh, asking unanimous consent to place into the record a letter that I wrote as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus June 17th of last year to uh, Attorney General Sessions and Acting Director McCabe uh, expressing our concern over the rising, uh, the alarming number of hate crimes, the rise in hate crime, and all of the other things, and asking uh, this Congress to hold a hearing. So I want to thank that you for doing that, and I'd like to insert that into the record, because that was before Tree of Life. Without objection. That was before uh, Charlottesville. So I want to thank you for stepping up to the plate and having this hearing. Uh, let me just say, because we, we heard a, a pretty accurate uh, description of the First Amendment. And I will not impugn any intent to it, but I think that there was one glaring omission, which is you don't get to yell hate in a crowded theater. And just because you're upset with your station in life and sitting in your mama's basement in your boxers, you don't get to spew hate that you know uh, will incite violence uh, because you can hide behind uh, anonymity. Uh, it was said that we're fear-mongering and the concern over white nationalism may be misplaced or even uh, I think it was quoted as stupid. I will just tell you that the families of the Emanuel Nine, those were real funerals. Those are real kids without real parents. Those are real grandparents who were worshiping the Lord and invited the young man in and let him share with them their worship experience. And according to the perpetrator, he said they were so nice, they were so welcoming, I almost changed my mind. So I want us to put it back in perspective what we're talking about here. It's not just free speech. We are talking about inciting violence. We're talking about finding and influencing weak people to do dastardly deeds because the pain is very real. Uh, so, and now look, I'm equal opportunity and I'm very honest about how I feel. We know words have consequences. You can ask Congressman Steve Scalise, words have consequences and we owe the American people better rhetoric. But my fear is that we can't have 1600 Pennsylvania giving harbor and empowering people to feel that way. The gentleman from California, Mr. Correa. Thank you, Mr. Chair Chairman. Thank you very much for holding this most important hearing to address the issue of hate crimes and how to prevent them and the rise of white nationalism. 
back home in Orange County, California, we're not immune. We've also seen a sharp rise and increase of hate crimes and race-related incidents in the last few years. And those are just the crimes that are actually reported. And just yesterday, just yesterday, the family of Army Lieutenant Richard Collins III shared their painful experience of domestic terrorism in my office. The family told me a story. Their constituents from uh, Steny Hoyer's district, their son, who had recently been commissioned May 2017, was killed, stabbed in the heart by an individual inspired by white supremacist material. Here's a picture of Richard Collins, young man, ready to port to the Army. Two weeks after graduating from Army ROTC, College Army ROTC, stabbed in the heart while waiting for a bus. In the name of all these victims, trying to prevent them in the future, I have a lot of questions, but uh, Ms. Hershov and Dr. Abu Salaba, I would ask you again, when our political leaders echo white supremacist, white nationalist ideas, does that inspire violence in our streets? Um, honestly, it does. Uh, if you are in power, if you're in charge, you're a role model. You represent your country. Um, I don't want to name any names, but um, I'm not a politician, so I don't really follow the details of everything in D.C., but it would be inspiring for our leaders to be uniting and um, fair and calculated when they talk about um, sensitive issues and reinforce unity and solidarity of all Americans. We are the most diverse country in the world. And if our leaders do not practice that genuinely, we're in a dark path. That's all I can say. Ms. Clark, following up on that comment about diversity, my district, I consider it to be the new Ellis Island of the United States, Central Orange County. We have people from all over the world, immigrants from all over the world, refugees. A lot of those kids in those schools are very nervous, very stressed out, very scared. What do I tell them? That we've done them a grave injustice and that we as adults need to do better, that we need to expect more from our national leaders, that no student deserves to go to a school where the N-word is scrawled on the wall or swastikas are found in bathrooms, where KKK flyers are distributed uh, to students. These are all things that we're seeing right now play out at, 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 inside of our nation's schools. Um, we need law enforcement to do better, and we need our leaders to reject policies that dehumanize uh, stu students of color, communities of color, and most importantly, we, we need to all condemn the hate that's playing out across our country right now. Ms. Clark, I think what you're trying to say is that we have to remember what America is all about. That's right. A country of immigrants, a country of folks that have been re rejected by their home countries and come to America and have made this country the greatest country in the world. Right. We have to remind our children of our heritage. That's right. You have been listening to witnesses at the House Judiciary Committee hearing on hate crimes and the rise of white nationalism, held April 9, 2019. 
The last voices you heard were Representative Lou Correa, Democrat of California, questioning Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank contributors Gerald Horn and Chantel James. The music we played this hour included Pocket One by the Backyard Band, a piece simply titled Instrumental featuring Nipsey Hussle from the Streets 2015 album, 40 Trap and Hip Hop Instrumentals, and Gord Guanco by Women of the Calabash. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On the Ground Show, and we're on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. We're inviting all our listeners to join us in celebrating On the Ground's fifth birthday. We debuted on May Day, May 1st, 2014. So on May 1st, 2019, we turned five years old and we are having a series of special birthday markers culminating with a celebration. Save the date on May 19th at 5 p.m. at the new Anacostia Busboys and Poets 2004 Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Southeast Washington. That's May 19th, 5 p.m. at the new Anacostia Busboys and Poets. Stay tuned for more information about that. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.